everyone. Welcome to the 1570 Project. I have back today Paul Craney from Mass Fiscal. Um, we're going to talk about a few things today that have been kind of in the news. Um, first of all, I'm really excited about the SCOTUS rulings this week. Um, good news all around on kind of some of these big cases that we'd been waiting the whole session to hear from SCOTUS on this stuff. And um, really, the, the two big ones that I've been excited about are the... Uh, the case that's about the Arizona election laws that ruled that, yes, in fact, states can put reasonable limitations on voting like that. You have to vote in your own precinct and you have to fill out your own absentee ballot that an activist who works for one of the candidates can't help you by doing it for you. Um, so, um, you know, some of these kind of reasonable restrictions that that people were trying to get thrown out as being so-called racist election laws. Um, the, uh, the Voting Rights Act was found not to apply to these laws because they're, they're not really racist laws. And I mean, I don't know, Paul, maybe you can speak to this a little, but honestly, like, I just don't even understand this argument that having to vote in your precinct is racist. I, I, I don't get it. I can't understand where they're coming from on this. Uh, I don't understand it either because it also just makes it sound like if that's true that, uh, you know, we're being racist for saying that you have to vote within your precinct, then you're, then you're alluding to the fact that people in the minority community can't uh, put their ballots in the right precinct, which I think is kind of insulting to say the least. And I say this because, you know, I'm half Mexican. My mother's from another country. Um, this is something that, I've never heard of having an issue with, uh, but you you're right. Basically, find the your voting Court place, just decided right? that states. Yeah, I can. <laughs> I can find it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't get what the argument is, but I mean, like everybody that I follow on Twitter who's left of center is like freaking out about this. I mean, NPR headline was something like, you know, the Supreme Court guts the Voting Rights Act and like, I, I just don't see how that's that. I mean, the Voting Rights Act has existed and these rules have existed in Arizona. These aren't like some new rules that came into play because Trump lost in 2020. These are rules that have been on the books a long time. I think the uh, the ballot harvesting one is since 2016 because there were actually some issues in 2016 with groups, including Republican groups in some states like North Carolina, um, having it, doing bad things with ballot harvesting that really weren't correct and and so they put this rule in 2016 but the the rule that you have to vote in your precinct has been around even longer than that i don't even think it's like written into the law that's just like how it works i don't even it's you vote at your voting place and if you vote somewhere else it doesn't count like i don't understand what they want voting places to do Yeah, I agree. And also, I think we talked about one time before on the show, mm -hmm. the more you loosen up um, and you make it, quote, easier to vote, the more transparency you want with the process. And, um, you know, when you start doing stuff where people can vote outside their precinct, you know, I have to imagine the vast majority of people are going to start looking at this pretty skeptically. And rightly so. And when you do that, uh, you take away the confidence in the system. I mean, that's not what you want. 
Right, exactly. And I, I mean, I think that's something that plays into what we're seeing with ranked choice voting too right now. I mean, so we dodged this bullet thanks to work mm-hmm. of people like you in Massachusetts that fight for transparency here in this state, but New York City is doing it for their mayoral election. And wow, what a mess that is. I can't even like get over it that we're more than a week out from their election and we have no idea who even won. They've screwed up the count by hundreds of thousands of votes. They like have hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots to count. They don't know. Like it's looking like the person who was ahead maybe isn't going to win, but it depends. And you know, if somebody else ends up in second place, then maybe they could. It's just ridiculous. And I, like, what were they thinking putting forward this system? I can't even imagine it. I think for a lot of people, um, history starts for them right now, and they never look back and realize why certain events took place. In the city of Worcester, they had ranked choice voting, and it was an absolute disaster. They had hundreds of cans running. The city of New York City actually did have ranked choice, I think, in the 30s and 40s. Oh, wow. They clearly got rid of it. And in 2019, they decided to bring it back, and this is the first election. Now, what's significant about this is that this happens to be the largest ranked choice election in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's the first one in New York City. Um, you know, and, you know, like you said, frankly, if it can't work there, it's just I just don't think it can work in general. A lot of jurisdictions that have it, that have experience with it, a lot of politicians, they don't like it because although it has some curb appeal uh, and uh, um, the, the goals of ranked choice are pretty... Uh, appealing, um, the benefits aren't really there. And we're seeing that this week where almost two Mm -hmm. weeks out, we still don't know exactly who won. And it's just a mess. It's just absolute mess. You're, you're making a system that is fine. That works may have some flaws. You're making it really complicated. And Mm -hmm. this is the, the end result that you have. Well, yeah, it's like you put people in charge who are these like egg-headed think tank type of people and they come up with this brilliant plan to like make elections work so much better and they're super smart so we'll come up with this super smart idea where we'll let people rank everybody and then we'll have instant runoffs where we drop people and like it seems good on paper but in practice people don't want to have to know about 75 different candidates that are appearing on their ballot to put them all in order you know they know about maybe their favorite one or two people and they don't want to deal with having to rank all these different people that they've never heard of and then their ballot ends up being exhausted halfway through they're out of choices so it doesn't end up counting in the final thing anyway whereas you know and i was thinking about this a lot with new york Like, people might not, like, they go out to vote for somebody that they like that's their candidate, and they kind of heard of the ranked choice voting thing, but they don't know that much about it, so they just end up putting down, you know, their favorite person and leaving the rest blank. And it might have turned out that if you had a real runoff election, that person might have actually had a preference in the runoff when they were exposed to news cycles that featured just those two candidates and compared and contrasted them together versus like having to go through your ballot and think about every hypothetical matchup between people and how you would rate them between each other. It's just it's a lot of work for the average voter. And I just think like, have these people ever met a voter? Because I've knocked a lot of doors in Massachusetts and people do not want to do this work. It's like already hard 
to get people to go out and vote and know about like any down ballot races, any additional third party candidates. Like look at how third party candidates usually do. They usually are so low in name recognition. It's very, very difficult for them to break through. But now you're like asking people to put all this work into all these candidates. It's very, it's like very demanding on the electorate in a way that only somebody who's never actually talked to a human voter could possibly come up with and I I think it, the issues are so clear now I hope this finally like does away with this system for uh, uh, people pushing this system on us everywhere but I know you were tweeting today about how the Boston Globe is like don't blame ranked choice voting this is not ranked choice voting's fault ranked choice voting is still very very good <laughs> yeah it's unbelievable but you're so right. I, in an idealistic world, we would study all the candidates, we'd learn all their positions, and we'd be able to rank them. But that's just not reality. I heard the proponents say last year during the election cycle when this was in the ballot in Massachusetts, it's like ranking your favorite ice cream flavors, mm-hmm. you know, chocolate, vanilla, et cetera, strawberry. But, you know, that's with understanding that you've tasted all those flavors and you do have that ability. Mm-hmm. Also, people like ice to, cream. You may and, want to in your audience. Yeah. People don't even like politicians. Like they don't <laughs> want to spend a ton of their time. Like if you were ranking a bunch of ice cream flavors, you would like go out and try a bunch of ice cream because that's like fun to find out about different ice cream flavors. But having to spend my life researching obscure politicians is just like no one wants to do that. But people who live in mm-hmm. like political yeah, exactly science right. land and- like just are in denial about this. They think everybody in America is the people on Twitter and it just isn't so. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And that's why the Boston Globe, again, editorialized about it today. They, they know virtually none of the facts that are happening in New York City, but they're saying, you know, please trust that the system works. Just there are some people that don't know how to implement it. Well, the fact that people don't know how to implement it says the system doesn't work. And we don't know how many of these ballots were exhausted, which is what you were talking about, how many people voted in error, you know, they made mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's going to take a while to figure out. And I can guarantee you, it's definitely going to happen because it's the first election. Well, It's just naturally going to happen. It takes a lot to get people used to voting that way. Well, right. And so what's happening now is they're talking about you know, who's going to win the final matchup between Garcia and Adams. But it could turn out once they count all the absentee ballots, um, Garcia might not even end up in second place. It could be Maya Wiley in second place, in which case, you know, Eric Adams probably has a better chance of winning. But because you don't know and because you have hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots to count before you can even know who's in which place order, then you're then you're really in trouble in terms of transparency of people like knowing where things stand, which gets back to what you were saying, like the trust and transparency in elections. You know, people were criticizing Eric Adams for saying that there was a problem with the ballots and saying like, oh, this is like Trump not trusting elections. Well, maybe people don't trust elections because you do it in the most obscure and insane way possible. Like, think about it a little bit. Why do you think people aren't trusting this process? Yeah. You know, Alice, the, this was obviously in the ballot in Massachusetts last year. And as you said, we dodged a bullet with it, uh, which I'm so glad the Massachusetts voters overwhelmingly rejected this proposal. 
In fact, some of the Massachusetts uh, cities also rejected it. Lowell rejected it recently. And like I said, Worcester had it, got rid of it a long time ago, generations mm -hmm. ago. But the ranked choice does have a lot of curb appeal. If you listen to advocates, they make it sound like it's really good. The three biggest things they say is that it, it will pick, it will select a candidate that has majority support. The second is that um, allows um, less negative campaigning. And the third is that it doesn't allow spoiler candidates. Those are the three big things, and all of them are actually really false. The only way, the, the, the biggest, obviously, benefit is that it picks a majority candidate. The only way it can ever get to a majority candidate is by uh, slowly disqualifying ballots along the way. So they lower the amount of ballots that are eventually counted. That's how they get to that. The problem with that is that there's, there's a lot of circumstances where it's really hard to predict who are the last two candidates standing. There's definitely some situations you can predict and you would enjoy a ranked choice election. I often said last year when we're debating this issue with the advocates that, you know, I, I happen to be conservative. Uh, I have some friends who, you know, supported President Trump that are Republican and some that are Republican that didn't support him. Under ranked choice, the folks that are upset at President Trump that are conservative could have voted for a libertarian on the first ballot and voted for Trump the second. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Trump is still going to win the Republican or conservative vote. That's an example of ranked choice, giving people an option to blow off some steam. The problem with uh, these ranked choice votes is that it's really hard to predict in most situations who are the last two people standing. And the, the clearest picture I could give people is, remember the Democrat primary for president? There's about 20 candidates running. Mm -hmm. Even in Massachusetts, when we had our primary on the Democrat mm -hmm. side, we had a lot of viable candidates. Right. Elizabeth Warren, I think, got in third place. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard if you're voting in an election like that to know who are the last two people standing, making sure that you are picking the proper people standing at the end. Because if you're not, your 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 ballot will get disqualified along the way in order right. to find who has the most votes. So that makes it really hard. That's the number one appeal to ranked choice voting, and it's um, you know, it, it's not quite what they advertise. The second thing is negative campaigning. They say, you know, if you have to have candidates all working together to get your second, third, fourth place votes, they're going to be less negative campaign. That's just not true. In fact, Maine has had ranked choice voting for, I think, three cycles now. And all that all what really happens is that instead of candidates contrasting themselves in maybe a, a hard edged way, a very pointed way. Now, super PACs are the ones that are doing the negative campaigning. So you're just allowing an outside voice to come into these elections to say, you know, Paul's really bad. Vote for Alice instead of me. Instead of Alice saying, well, Paul supports this tax increase and I don't. So that's what really happens. Maine has had a few elections. They know what's going on. They've actually quantified how much more money has come into their elections that are very negative. I think it's like double or triple now. It's really high. Hmm. And it's just by super PACs. And the last thing is gaming the system. A lot of times they say with ranked choice elections, they used example of like um, a fringe candidate who, you know, in Massachusetts, they often say this, a, a very far left fringe candidate who may take votes away from a Democrat and a Republican wins. And uh, if you have ranked choice, then the, the, the left can vote for the fringe candidate, but also vote for the Democrat. Well, that's just not, not true. Again, Maine has had some experience. They're not too far from us. The, the first ranked choice election they had was a, uh, a member of Congress named Bruce Polkman, a Republican. He got like 49.8% of the vote. Not quite 50, but very, very close. Mm -hmm. 
he had two independents and a Democrat run mm -hmm. against him. One of the independents was a pro-marijuana candidate. So, you know, take it for it as a single-issue and fringe candidate. But the other independent was an anti-Republican, pro-Democrat candidate. So all that person did was say, whatever, you know, vote for me, the independent, vote for the Democrat, second ballot, whatever you do, don't vote for the Republican. Well, that's called gaming the system. And that's exactly what happened. The Democrat ended up winning. And he voted because of those third-party candidates, those independents. So there are ways to obviously game the system, just like any election cycle. But political activists are the ones that love this system the most. As you were kind of um, describing, it's the hardcore ideological political activists. These are ways for them to game the system, to get outcomes that they normally couldn't get. It allows for them to uh, put on a, on a pedestal very far uh, extremist types of candidates who now all of a sudden have some more credibility. So you'll see a lot of kind of Yahoo candidates come out of the woodwork and say this is a great idea. Uh, because it gives them more of a platform. Right. And honestly, I mean, like, I know we all love to say, like, oh, the two-party system and this and that, and it's so damaging that we only have these two to pick from. But, you know, sometimes it's actually more of a distraction and a pain in the neck in to have all these extra candidates in here. And even sometimes when they have more legitimacy, like we saw in Massachusetts, when we had Evan Falchuk finally got his 3% that he needed in order to have his independent party kind of have their own ballots and be like an official party in Massachusetts. And it was a disaster because people thought the independent party was just being unenrolled or independent as like people just kind of colloquially colloquially call it to not be in a party so there were people signed up for his party and then they didn't realize that they couldn't vote in other primaries and the state had to send out all these letters letting them know that they weren't going to be able to vote in the you know the, in the presidential primaries in 2016 because they were enrolled as this weirdo independent party that barely got three percent of the vote you know, this everybody had to print all these extra ballots for this party that had no candidates running in it anywhere. You know, they're supposed to have like city and town committees for the party that nobody was in because it was it was a disaster. It was just like so much extra paperwork and stupid stuff that all this red tape that everybody had to go through because this party reached this threshold where we had to treat it like a legitimate thing, even though it wasn't. And, you know, it. It really, I thought, was, you know, and I kind of was ambivalent about it. I didn't have strong feelings about Evan Falchuk at the time when he was doing his independent run for governor. But it um, it was just, it was a mess. And it was really damaging, I thought, for the next cycle that, that this had happened. So, you know, unless they're really, it's very, very unusual that you have, like, serious independent candidates you know, like a Ross Perot kind of candidate where it's actually adding something to the conversation and not just a stunt, like you said, for like these political operative types to give themselves something to do and a party to run. And, you know, it's just a different type of grift, sort of the whole like independent stuff and the no labels stuff and all that kind of thing. And, you know, fundamentally in the U.S., like we have mm -hmm. the teams that we have, you know, we have people who want higher taxes and people who want lower taxes. There's not really like an independent. There's not a third option. It's up or down. Like you can't. It just is what it is. So, I mean, 
Yeah. I think that um, sometimes the, the sort of like third party, this empowers third parties and empowers independent candidates stuff is sort of not as helpful as people think it sounds like it would be in theory. Yeah, you know, in theory, too, about this was something that during the last election, we I, we couldn't really get into too much when we did all these debates. I mean, we did probably like 100 debates, but right. it wasn't a question that was often asked. But I do think there are, you know, like you said, people like to complain about the two-party system, but I do think there is some benefit to having a two-party system that needs to appeal, to the most part, to the majority, if not the plurality of voters. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to have platforms, they have to have candidates that can appeal to large swaths of the electorate. Uh, by adding a ranked choice, what you're doing is you're allowing fringe candidates, a lot of times single-issue candidates, whatever it be, like pro-gun, pro-marijuana, whatever, find your issue, and you're allowing them to have an equal voice or a, a louder voice in the political process, which then takes away some of the, the influence that political parties are supposed to have right now to survive. So you're actually diminishing the power of political parties and you're resulting the influence of kind of single issue topics, which may um, may interest some people, but I don't think the, the vast majority of voters anywhere are really that interested. Um, it, mm-hmm. it kind of appeals to certain, I wouldn't say extremes, but certain um, narrowly focused voters. Right. Um, so it's a whole different conversation. If you bring out ranked choice, right. what does that do to the two political parties long-term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think it's anything good necessarily i think that the the two parties that we have are really um doing a lot of the work as a sort of shorthand for people because like we talked about it's really hard to get people to vote in like down ballot races and all these other things and they haven't heard Mm -hmm. of a lot of these people and you know having the political parties on there really kind of lets people know roughly like a basket of issues where this person probably roughly stands you know and it gives and there's obviously exceptions to that there are different types of republicans and different types of democrats but for the average voter you want the party on there for that reason so that they can go in and know like which team which side of the issues more or less people are on and it confuses things to you know be mixing it up with all this different these different like party labels and things. People don't have the time to be bothered with it. They want to know, you know, is this a Republican or is this a Democrat? And they, you know, that's, it's not perfect. It's, you know, it, it's tough sometimes when everything gets lumped into these sort of national big issue battles, like big culture war battles, or do you like Trump or not like Trump? But so there's disadvantages to that, too. But the alternative where people just don't vote in a lot of races because they don't know anything about any of the people who are running because they're all like independents with a, you know, a hodgepodge of positions on things that's even harder to deal with, I think, in the end. Yeah. And it's worth noting, Alice, that, you know, the ranked choice did fail in Massachusetts. I think they got 45 and our side got 55 percent. But it was largely driven by three or four people who live out of state. Hmm. And they're doing this nationally. They they barely got it passed in Alaska. And they kind of added ranked choice to all sorts of other unrelated campaign finance rules in order to get it passed. But that's kind of who's driving this ship. People have to ask themselves, like, why is this being thrown on us and 
that's the reason there's three or four people nationally who for whatever reason think that this is a better system than any other system that's potentially out there we don't we're not even talking about other systems besides ranked choice in the current system but that's what's driving this um it's also i think in getting embedded with uh the democrat party although i will say obviously there's a lot of people that are democrat voters who don't support it uh and there's also some you know people in massachusetts who are well-known democrats who don't support it but what you're definitely seeing is that the the ranked choice folks are, are definitely trying to target the fringe left of the Democrat Party to make it this kind of ideal this ideal system for voting that mm-hmm. a lot of times doesn't actually work. But it's kind of like socialism, right? Socialism sounds really good on paper. Right. We all work for the common goal. We you know we don't have to put each other down to advance. And you know it has these kind of these. Um, these talking points, these selling items that may sound good, but practically speaking, yeah. never has ever worked. True rank choice rank, voting has voting never been tried. Very rarely ever really works. So, yeah, yeah. And they want to tell us, you know, we've never but, tried um, it. Yeah, really. one of the systems we talked a lot about. Go ahead, Alice. I'm sorry, I was oh, cutting no. you off. That's okay. No, I was just saying it's like true rank choice voting has never been tried the same way it's like, oh, real socialism has never been tried. Oh, those were dictatorships. Stalin didn't have it right. New York got it wrong. Their board of <sighs> elections just isn't good at this. It's not that's not what's gonna happen everywhere else when we do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Sure. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. If but what, do you want to talk about also what happened this week? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the Supreme Court, too, because this was really good news. So we talked a little about the Arizona laws, but um, but there was another big decision that came down this week from SCOTUS. And this has been a big one for Mass Fiscal in particular, but but lots and lots of groups. I mean, like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood also, you know, wanted this to end up this way. So this isn't really a right versus left thing. But but go ahead. Talk a little bit about like what this decision is going to mean nationally because this is a big one it was uh they call it the i call it the afp versus california it's americans for prosperity foundation versus i think it was first like camilla harris and now it's garcia mm-hmm. uh, but it's basically a case in california that um in the lower courts went the way that i would like it and eventually and i think an appeal court went the wrong way so then it was appealed to the u.s supreme court and they decided to take it this past year but basically what it means is that nonprofit organizations, so these are collect- these are associations of individuals and, you know, other entities, corporations, I guess unions as well, but it's nonprofit organizations in California just for the sake of doing business in their state had to disclose all of their members who donate $5,000 or more to the state of California. And that's something called a Schedule B in their tax filings, which is called a 990. And that document, the Schedule B, is not supposed to be made public. But California says that they need it because they want to make sure there's no fraud that goes on. The IRS also mandates this form just with 501c3 organizations. Uh, So it's a national rule that in a state they decided to do it as well and eventually got to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, uh, I think they mostly relied on some of the old talking points from the civil rights era on this issue. What's been so fascinating with this whole topic, if you care about it, that is, because it's a very narrowly focused issue, 
uh, is that during the civil rights era, we, we actually debated all these topics back then. And it was playing out down south where you had civil rights nonprofit groups that were pretty loosely formed that were trying to advance their rights, rightly so, down south. And yet southern racist Democrats making the arguments back then that they're making today, which is we just want to know who are these uh, associations being funded by? Who are their members? The public has a right to know if they're trying to influence public policy or conversations that we should know who are these people. So back then in the 1950s, the Supreme Court actually ruled in a unanimous decision that, you know, what do you think is going to happen when you make these membership rosters public? There's going to be a lot of harassment, intimidation, etc. More recently, what you're starting to see is the left some aspects of the vocal left are making those same arguments, but now they're calling it dark money. They're trying to use some other confusing buzzwords to paint over the fact that this is exactly what was being said during the civil rights era against uh, minority organizations. Uh, in the state of California, this case played out, and what they were saying a little bit more was that what we're trying to do is prevent fraud. So we want to know who all these donors are. This way we can prevent fraud because they're taking tax uh, benefits. And the Supreme Court basically said no. Um, the, the government doesn't have a real need for this information. They can always get it if they suspect fraud and they go through the normal procedures of uh, going to court for this information, but they don't need it just for the sake of needing it. Right. They don't and need to be hanging on to a, a list of everybody. <laughs> care about the First Amendment. Yeah. And, uh, it's been very interesting to see it play out because the, the left has started to embrace this position of donor disclosure, which results in intimidation. What I've always argued is that disclosure is good for government, privacy is good for individuals, and we have to remember that. We want government officials to be disclosed in what they're doing, but private citizens should not be subject to these types of disclosure rules because private citizens have rights for their speech and association. It's a First mm -hmm. Amendment. When you try, try when you try to dox private citizens and their associations, it leads to harassment. We all have seen it many times happen, and uh, you you hear some of the talking points by the left, which is oh the the harassment that happened in the civil rights era doesn't happen today, and obviously that's not true. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who get all sorts of crazy threats, including myself at Mass Fiscal. I've had. Um, to file police reports against people, go you know go to court for this kind of stuff because you know in the modern world people get really um, really uh, strong opinions with what goes on in public policy to a point that's unhealthy at times. Right. But that's that's essentially what the Supreme Court said. They're going to continue to keep the First Amendment strong, the freedom of association, the freedom of speech, and that's a good thing as we head into this uh, Independence Day weekend. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're getting to, you know, if I wanted to start a group that wanted to advocate about, say, like abortion or something and just, you know, talk about it as a policy and work towards, you know, making information known about it that wasn't tied to a specific election, I have the right to do that and say that. And that's my political speech. And if somebody wants to, you know, give me money to help me put out that message, then I don't have to, you know, give their names in a list to the government. And like one of the things I thought was so interesting reading these um, uh, decisions in this case in particular was that um, the group Americans for Prosperity was actually able to show that the state of California wasn't keeping 
had no capability to keep that information confidential at all, that their website was completely not secure, that this information was out there. And like you said, like, it's absolutely not the case that there's not harassment. I mean, back in 2008, the guy at Mozilla had to quit his job because there was so much harassment because he dared to donate against the gay marriage ballot question. And, you know, it just as another example, the people that donated to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense, that information got hacked and leaked. And I mean, some of those people were like cops that had to leave departments that were fired and laid off because their hacked information was put out there by people. This is a real risk. And like, I think this is so, so important to keep people able to say and do and associate with who they want. Like you said, like, Happy 4th of July. Thank God for the Supreme Court and, you know, keeping us able to have this kind of political discourse because some of our friends on the left, like you said, are very passionate about these things to the point where it's like a religious belief with them, you know, on some of this stuff. And Mm -hmm. they just can't imagine having to live in a world where somebody out there disagrees with them, even if it's disagrees with them secretly in a way that's not affecting them at all you know and it's so misguided like I just I don't honestly believe that money affects directly elections and policy that much it at the end of the day people have the opinions that they're going to have it's like the stuff with the Russia interventions in 2016 like I just don't think that because somebody bought some Facebook ads about Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin was why it went that way. Like, I have more faith in people than that, I guess. But, you know, and then a couple of Facebook ads weren't what got somebody who was going to go out and vote for Hillary Clinton to change their mind, you know? Yeah. I mean, we saw that. So this is a great decision by the Supreme Court and... Mm -hmm. And even though as Americans for Prosperity, they actually had a lot of different um, uh, other organizations that signed on, I believe, as amicus briefs, a mm-hmm. lot of groups that were from the left or, or from, you know, libertarian thinking. It really brought in a lot of different uh, perspectives because, you know, I think they saw the value in the fact that the First Amendment is worth fighting for, freedom right. of association, freedom of speech. And it's not so much that um, people necessarily shouldn't come forward if, if um you know, for certain member organizations, it's that they are the ones that should set those terms. If they want to come forward, they can, but um, other people don't have the right. And oftentimes what I, you know, I get asked this question a lot, this topic, and I say, you know, look, I don't have the right to go to the Boston Globe and say, I want your membership role. You know, I don't have a right to go to a business and say, I want your customer role. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have a right to come into a nonprofit organization and say, I want your membership role. Because these organizations have rights. They actually do. It's constitutional rights. Yes, these organizations are people. They're not voting. But they do have constitutional rights. And the, and the First Amendment was upheld in this case. So, you know, some people, some organizations will make their members public. You know, Mass Fiscal, we have a board of directors. That is public. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, it's not saying that... Um, when people do come forward, it's it's a bad thing. It just means that they are the ones that are setting those terms up to them to do that. And it's not someone else's right more than those individuals, right, who want to associate and have speech. Right. And I think that um, that it's almost disappointing to me that um, 
that there none of the liberal justices joined in on this because I do think it's kind of a value that should be shared across the board. And like you said, there have been past cases like this that have been unanimous. And, you know, I was also kind of disappointed in for that reason because, um, you know, I think that it's really good in a lot of ways for people to see the Supreme Court justices voting across what they consider to be the ideological lines. You know, these two cases this week happen to be decided 6-3, you know, on kind of the the lines you would expect where the justices appointed by Republicans went one way and the justices appointed by Democrats went the other way. But, you know, just before that, we had another two cases where it was a total mix and we had Gorsuch and Kagan over here and this person over here and there was no rhyme or reason. You know, Amy Coney Barrett that we were getting told was going to gut Obamacare that they were pushing to get her in so that she could destroy Obamacare forever, voted, you know, against the lawsuit against Obamacare. She voted to keep Obamacare the way it was on this severability case that I think most people agree was like just not not a very compelling case legally. And and I think that people forget sometimes that the issues that come up in front of the Supreme Court aren't necessarily about the political outcome that you want to see. You know, it wasn't the question in front of the Supreme Court wasn't, do you like Americans for prosperity? Do you like the Koch brothers? You know, it wasn't that wasn't the question they were deciding. Uh The question was a sort of very specific legal question. And I think I have a lot of faith in our Supreme Court still that I think these justices are really trying to decide the matters of the law in front of them, you know, as they as they really think they are. And of course, they do come from different ideological places. But a lot of times you do see them crossing the lines of, you know, political party, which is so great. Like, that's why we have the Supreme Court where they're not elected, where they don't have to respond to these political pressures because they they don't have to worry about what the voters think of something. They can just consider very narrowly the legal issues that are in front of them. And, you know, I think it would be good if we could ramp down the rhetoric about the Supreme Court being compromised and Biden needing to pack it with like four more justices or whatever. That would be so bad for our country. It's really, really a good thing that we have this body that decides things sort of separately from all the hysteria of the day to day political back and forth. Yeah, and it was funny right after this decision came out, Senator Markey came out and reaffirmed his support for packing the court, which shows you to your point these justices don't have to live in the world of politics that these politicians you know gladly do and it is so refreshing to see the court um come to their own decisions the way they have and it is kind of annoying though with like this uh afp case that the three more liberal justices didn't join the majority i mean again i I saw that i think it was um kagan was saying something to the fact of uh well, you know, you're just you're allowing California to do its job to make sure there's no corruption. Therefore, that was her position. I was just, I don't know. I mean, I just the bigger picture is obviously out there, and I think the justices took, you know, they decided because of that, and it was mm-hmm. just kind of sad to see some of the the, the three other justices mm-hmm. not join. Because to me, it seems like a real no-brainer especially when you look at all the different groups that came forward to support the AFP case. Right. I mean, how often do you have the ACLU and, and, um, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center 
and you know these coke funded groups agreeing on something that's really i would think that would be like pretty compelling to people but all i see on social media it's just like it makes me tired because it just goes on like oh the supreme court is so political and the the coke brothers got what they paid for when they paid for kavanaugh's debts up like just this imaginary world stuff of of things that aren't really happening i'm like do you read any supreme court decisions because it's actually not that often that cases are decided on these ideological lines. It's kind of unusual. There's always people crossing over. It's always, but no one wants to hear that. That's like too nuanced and complicated that, you know, justices are people too who are trying to do their job and think about the law and what it means. Uh, And, and, you know, I, it's one of those things that like makes me frustrated with the state of the conversation that we're having nationally because it doesn't seem to me that it's like the most useful or helpful conversation. I mean, maybe it drives clicks on CNN's website or something to say that like the the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act this week, but I just like I find it so frustrating that we're not talking about the real world. We're talking about like this fantasy world game that that isn't really what's happening out there so I don't know (laughs) that was like the state of my week I was like I have to talk about this on the podcast and get it off my chest that that um that everything is like everybody's lost their minds or something I don't know oh yeah I agree but yeah uh, I mean it's uh been a long week but fortunately hopefully there'll be a little break from news over this weekend so i'm hoping that everybody can get out there breathe the fresh air covid's pretty much over so you can go be with your family have a cookout relax and uh you know everybody can calm down a little bit and maybe things will be better when we get back from the long weekend i'm hoping but um, anyway, thank you for coming on on the eve of the 4th of yeah, July definitely. weekend. Um, I know it's a crazy time, but um, I appreciate it so much. And it was a great conversation. Hopefully, I'll talk to you soon. Clouds rolled in and I said, must have brought the rain from Boston. But you looked at me and I felt the sun.